I will be reading from the New Testament of the Bible, the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, and 18 through 24. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you, for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad everybody's here. I'm glad everybody's okay. Thursday and Friday brought with them uh, some news from the earth that you probably felt or experienced if you were in the city. I am not from Southern California, so I've told folks this is like a whole... Somebody said you've been baptized into Southern California now with this earthquake. Uh... (laughs) There is something humbling, though, about that experience. Also, there's something unsettling about it, like both literally and metaphorically unsettling about being in an earthquake. And there's that's a good posture to be in sometimes, to be unsettled and unsure, because it sort of makes you question what it is you were holding on to in the first place and whether that thing was secure enough. This morning you've chosen to be here, and so we're going to try to figure out some firm foundation, a place to stand. Uh, Dave has helped us get into this space by sharing communion, and the table is going to function as a an anchor for us and for our community together. You heard the reading this morning from Acts chapter 8, and so we've got to talk about Well, not a lot about sorcery and magic, but a little bit. Because if it's in the passage, then it's got to be talked about a little bit. So let's get the first slide up, Brian. I want to tell you a story. Uh, I don't know if either of these people look... Do either of these people look familiar to you? Oh, do you know Blake? Who's the top one? Yes! It's the amazing Randy. Who's heard of the amazing Randy? And it's R-A-N-D-I. I don't know why, but if it's R-A-N-D-Y, it would be comical. But Randy with an I sounds mystical. 
Okay, so the guy on the top is amazing, Randy. He is known as, well, he's like a, a magician of sorts, but also he loves to think of himself as a skeptic, as somebody who can bust myths. And the person on the bottom, does anyone know who that is? Peter Popoff. I learned about these two. Did someone just groan when they heard Peter's name? It's the right emotion to have when you hear Peter's name. No, he's not. Uh, so here's what happened. This guy on the top, and I came across him as I was reading about cultural skepticism around miracles, which is a thing. Especially for folks who find themselves uh, disinterested in faith of any category. Often it's the miracles that people of faith talk about, healings, resurrections, those sort of things, that they say none of that could ever happen. And since none of that could ever happen, the whole thing must be false. And this guy on the top kind of falls into that camp, the, the absurdity of miracles. So what he also goes is he tries to find people who are talking about the miraculous and practicing the miraculous, and then he wants to debunk them. So this guy at the bottom, Peter Popov, he was a televangelist operating in the last several decades. And he had this thing he would do uh, where if you've not been around televangelists, particularly in person, you should just think about uh, like Bruce Springsteen concerts or a Marilyn Manson concert because they they sort of structured their own performance after seeing televangelists and the way that they could perform. Seriously, these people are really good at working up a crowd. And so what Peter would do is in the beginning of a service, he would give us a small sermon, which was not his forte. Healing was his forte. And then he would ask everyone in the room, like, write down your prayer requests on yellow sheets of paper. We do the same thing here. (laughs) And then... uh, They would write these things down, different ailments that they had, different illnesses, and then they would turn those in. And he wouldn't receive them. He would just be up at the front. And then somewhere during the service, he would sort of have a moment. And I I was practicing his voice, but I'm not going to do it because I didn't get good enough at it. I know, right? Uh, (laughs) But he would yell out, I'll use my own voice, uh, in in just completely random here, uh, you know, Rich! Rich, I can, I can feel, Rich, right now, that you're struggling with A, right? Whatever A might be. And then Rich has just, well, he's just written this down on a prayer card. And how could Peter know? And then Rich would stand up and Peter would stand up and he'd have this moment of performance, right? And hit him on the head and cast out whatever demon of illness or sickness or, or binding he had. And then Rich, because if you're in front of a lot of people and I, I tell you like you've been healed, it might make you feel like you should subscribe to that healing. So yes, you sit down, affirm. This happens over and over again for like two hours. And so this guy, the amazing Randy says, "Uh uh-uh, something feels fishy here because this guy, Peter's making like a million bucks a day doing this. And typically, uh, the amount of money pouring in is in direct proportion to the amount of fraud going out. So he sets up a trap. He calls in uh, somebody who's an expert in surveillance and says, I think something's going on. It looks like Looks like Peter's wearing an earpiece. Here's what was happening. Uh, Peter's wife, uh, Corey, does not receive the yellow cards, but Peter's wife would receive all of the yellow cards at the prayer request and then would, would step off stage somewhere and then would speak to Peter while he was on stage and tell him, like, Peter, can you hear me? And her, her line that I heard when I was listening to this, Peter, if you can't hear me, you're in big trouble. Uh, and then she would tell him, like, you know, rich in the back, this is what's going on. And then it would just kind of miraculously happen. It was this sort of exchange. And uh, so they caught it on tape, went on the Johnny Carson show, found out he was a fraud. He went bankrupt. 
Uh, he's not gone, by the way. You can still buy holy water and holy acorns from Peter Popoff. He's made it back. Because if we know anything about entrepreneurs, they don't quit. Uh, Peter reminds me of Simon in our story today. Uh, this guy who is obsessed with the miraculous, with the wondrous, and loves the power and the greatness that comes along with practicing these kinds of signs and wonders. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to jump in together. There's this character that shows up named Simon from Samaria. You might know him as like Simon the sorcerer. And now when you hear sorcery, your mind might automatically go to uh, to something like the absurd, like this guy Peter with the earpiece in. It's all tricks and magic and smoke, right? That's not exactly what it means. We live in a post-enlightenment world, which means we are sort of bored with mysticism. That if we can't prove it, then it must not have happened. Uh, and miracles are, by definition, hard things to prove. But back in the day, that was not the way the world was understood. Everything had an edge of mystery to it. And the gods or God had something to do with everything happening. So like the earthquake that happened, the two earthquakes that happened, that would be telling us something about the spiritual realm, not simply like tectonic plates shifting around. We have an explanation for everything. But back then, that wasn't the case. And in fact, now we don't either. But that's another story. So Simon is this character from Samaria who is tapped into the wonder of the universe. Now he's exploiting it because he likes to be great. Even He even has his own like title, the power of God known as great, which seems like a mouthful. But that's Simon. Now Simon steps on the scene, but we need to tell the story about how his story is interwoven with the story being told in the book of Acts and why all of this intertwining matters. So let me just tell you where we've been and where we're going. Uh, there's been a persecution happening. Last week we talked about the, uh, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen has this long sermon he gives in front of the religious leaders at the time and some of the crowds, and they turn on him after the telling, and they kill him. And then it says after that in chapter 8, it says, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside from Judea to Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And that's where we meet Stephen. There is this violence that erupts among these early followers of Jesus, and it scatters them out throughout the surrounding areas and provinces. It says when he goes to Samaria, it's a lot when Jonah goes to Nineveh. Samaria is a place you don't go to if you're a good Jew. Just like Jonah's not supposed to go to Nineveh because that's the enemy of Israel. Samaritans are a lot like that. But he goes to Samaria and he proclaims to them this good news about Jesus the Messiah. But this thing happens. They all listen to him. This is a little bit like what happens in Nineveh when everybody converts and everyone says that they're sorry. It says even like the animals apologize in the book of Jonah. There's this widespread confession and then this widespread belief and then baptism. And in the midst of all of this, it says that the city erupts in great joy. Now, if you're reading this as a Jew during the first century, this is not good news to you that the Samaritans are happy. You don't want the Samaritans to ever, ever be happy. But they are. 
And one of the folks who's in the mix of all of this is this guy named Simon. Samaria has this deep history with Israel that is quite confused and confusing. But I'll just give you the short version. At various times, Israel is sent off into exile and different parts of the tribes are broken off and scattered. Several of them are just lost to history and they're known as the lost tribes of Israel. But some of those folks resettle back in the land. At some point, the kingdom of Israel is split in two, Israel and Judah. Uh, And there is this kind of part in the middle that becomes Samaria. These are the folks who've been brought back into Israel, but they kind of get to evolve in their faith independent of official Judaism. Think about like the island of Australia. It's been cut off for quite a while. And so the animals that exist in Australia are just super weird because, I mean, if you can explain to me a duckbill platypus, then please do. Or a kangaroo, they just don't make any sense. But it's because they've been island off here and they've kind of been able to shift and change with the environment in this sort of cloister. And that's Samaria. They develop this strain of Judaism That looks really weird if you're part of the official strain of Judaism. So like they accept the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, but that's it. None of the prophets or the writings or the wisdom tradition. Uh, They have intermixed within their practices a different mountain that they worship on, Mount Gerizim. Like there's this one woman that Jesus meets who's from Samaria. And she asks him at some point, like she realizes that he's a good teacher. And she says, there's this big debate going on. Our ancestors say we're supposed to worship on this mountain Mount Gerizim, but your ancestors say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem where the temple is. Who's right? She's asking Jesus to weigh in on this complex religious antagonism that's present at the time. Samaritans were seen as the worst kinds of half-bloods. That's sort of how they were understood. So the fact that Jesus' message is even moving toward them is already ridiculous enough. But then Simon shows up and he's all of the things that you might be afraid of from Samaria. He's obsessed with the kind of miraculous, whatever the new in vogue kind of spirituality is of the moment. But he also is a believer at this point and is baptized. So he's got like one foot in the water of following this Jesus character. Now, because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans so much, when they get word, the apostles, that Samaria has prayed and believed and been baptized, this is the one place where we find out they have to go and check. They like have to make sure and footnote that the Samaritans have actually done the thing that it's said that they have done. That's how much they don't trust these people. In case you're wondering why they send two apostles to check on them. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had not come upon them. They'd only been baptized, but they hadn't yet had the laying on of hands. Side note. The last time some apostles tried to go tell the Samaritans anything, they didn't listen. And those same apostles said, Jesus, do you mind if we call down thunder from heaven and just burn all of these people up? Like, that's the same folks who show up to double-check the work of the Spirit here. Peter... I'm not feeling too great about where this story's headed. So, Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Simon Saul's spirit was given through the laying on of hands. He offered the money, give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. There's this thing that's been happening in Samaria with Philip's preaching, with Simon's work, 
and it's called amazement, that everyone is amazed at what's happening. But the word amazed sounds positive when we say it. It's not exactly what the word means in the Greek. To be amazed in this story is to go mad, is to have your mind, your brain dislocate out of your body. It looks like this, existami. That's what it means when Simon practices his magic in front of the people and it says that they were amazed by it. It's as though they become deeply disoriented to reality. Now, when Philip shows up preaching and healing and exercising spirits, says that Simon's mind sort of jolts out of his body in amazement at what's happening. There's this sense of an obsession with the spectacular. And we have this too, right? The bigger, the more glittery something is and shiny it is, the more we are attracted to it. It looks like this. The crowds are deeply entranced by Simon's wonder. And Simon is deeply entranced by the power he sees active in Philip. The crowds buy what Simon is selling, and then Simon buys what Philip is selling. But it takes the apostles showing up and laying hands on them before we see the fullness of transformation. And so, as happens in the early church, the apostles show up, they say, y'all have been baptized, you are now believers, now receive the Spirit. This is the gift that Jesus has promised. So receive it. And it's this physical act of laying on of hands. Who in here has been ordained or has had someone lay hands on them? Zach, you were in this space when it happened, right? And did you, was the laying on of hands part of the service itself? There's something really powerful about that experience. Blake, you too? Have had this experience before? Uh, Now, when the apostles lay hands on these new believers in Samaria and promises them the Spirit. Now, when Simon saw, he offered them money and said, Give me also this power so that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Not surprisingly, Philip sees what's happening here and then Simon notices what's happening in this space and he wants in on the action because if magic if this wonder that you're able to conjure into the world accrues to your own greatness which also probably accrues to your own bank account then you want the good stuff you want the magic tricks that no one else knows about and this feels like the kind of thing you might could market and sell I would like some of that. Can I pay you for it so that I may be able to give anyone I would like to the spirit? That would be really, really cool. Which, by the way, if that was a thing, I would want a little bit of that too. Because then I could make sure to give an extra dose of God's spirit to whoever I like in this room. And then I could hold out on whoever it is is bugging me in this room. That's a lot of power to have, right? You would want it too, at least in the more baser parts of our person. And that's what Simon is craving. So much so that he offers to purchase it. Now the disciples are not super thrilled with this request. And with words they smite him. And they seem to enjoy doing so. What Simon asks for is not simply the spirit, but the power to confer the spirit. And again, we need to look at a word here. It's the word exousia. Exousia shows up mostly 
in places you wouldn't want to find it. Exousia is power or authority. It usually pertains to those in political power, to those in military power. The book of Daniel, which is one of the later books in the Old Testament, talks about the powers that be in the world that are operating against God's work in the world. When the devil asks Jesus if he would please just worship and then he will give him all exousia, that's the temptation to grasp for power. That's that's what Simon wants. It has been a temptation for Christians ever since this moment. That there might be a shortcut to getting God's work done in the world. If we could simply grasp at power, even if it's the kind of power the world wields, we would wield it differently. We would wield the sword differently. We would wield the power of office differently. If only we would be given this power, then we could make the world look like God wants it to look. We could control things and we could turn the levers and we could turn up the switches. That's the promise of power. Jesus offers power too. Very specifically says to these early followers, the power that has been given to me from the Father, I give to you. And that power is the power to forgive sins, to heal those who are ill, to cast out spirits in my name. Jesus exercises this power over and over again. See it in healings. You see it in exorcisms. You see it in the power to forgive. These are known as the signs and miracles that happen in the scriptures. They're the parts of the story that often we give a lot of attention to because they're strange and because we don't see them happen very often. If they happen once, then that's a big deal. But in the stories about Jesus, these miracles are often hmm, obscured. It's as though recognition for them is not the point. I'll read you a couple of passages. This is from Luke chapter 8. There's this, there's this person who is having a sort of psychotic break in these tombs. It says he's possessed by multiple spirits, known as the, the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus shows up commands these spirits out and then the man is restored to health, to wholeness. It says the man who had the demons had begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now it would have been really tempting in this story to be like, listen, I'm this Jesus guy and Jesus, me, is the Messiah. You should go tell people that I did this for you and then tell them that I'm the Messiah. This will be the proof of that thing. But he doesn't say that. He says that God, God has healed you. Declare how much God has done. Then the next story is two different healings. There's a woman who's had this physical ailment for a long, long time that's deeply embarrassing, and she chases after Jesus. And at the same time, there's a leader of the community whose daughter is really ill, and they're both after Jesus for healing because they've heard. The woman grabs the edge of Jesus' cloak and is healed. And then Jesus says to her, not like, ta-da, look what I did, which would have been an understandable response, but daughter, your faith has made you well go in peace. Again, not holding on 
to the privilege that power brings, but handing it back over. And then he goes to this young child who appears to be dead and raises her back to health. And it says, he directed all of the family there who were astounded not to tell anyone what had happened. Then a little bit later, these early disciples, they proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, like, what are people talking about when they talk about me? They say, they think you might be Elijah. They think you might be John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they say that you're the Messiah of God. And then he says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, this secret, this sort of veiled identity is confusing for a lot of us. I remember studying it. It's called the messianic secret. You learn about it in seminary and you never quite understand what it means until you spend a lot more time with it and realize what Jesus is doing. Jesus's miracles and healings are not about Jesus. Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is arrived and in God's kingdom, things are just put right. Things that are broken are mended. Things that are dead are brought back to life. Bodies that keep people out of the worshiping community, bodies of lepers, bodies of those with physical ailments, they are healed in such a way that they are brought back into community. Jesus is healing creation. It just happens to be the miraculous, but that's not the point. And Jesus makes sure that it can't be the point. By retreating at different times, by telling people to keep it secret, the point is wholeness, not privilege, not prestige. This makes no sense to me, and it makes no sense to our culture. It makes no sense to Simon. These signs and these miracles, Jesus tells us how to act with them. This is my interpretation of the Greek. What happens over and over again is that we confuse the signs for the substance of faith. It's actually the same thing that happens with folks who are skeptics of faith. Like 10 years ago or so, the new atheists were busting on the scene, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. And and one of the places where they kind of wedge in and attack people of faith is around these miracles. But they also confuse the signs for the substance. Simon does the same thing, and this story stands as a warning to us. Now, when the disciples lay hands on these early believers, the Spirit is given. And with the Spirit is power. I want to stop and talk a moment about the power we do possess. There are, if you, if you spent some time in like a charismatic tradition, then you might have been uh, pressured to prove faith with signs and wonders, like laying on of hands and actual healings or a certain kind of like speaking in tongues, it might be called. And uh, there's actually a lot to appreciate about that tradition that believes deeply that the power of God is present. But a lot of us grow up thinking that God's power is something that happened back in the day and doesn't really happen with us anymore. And so the best thing that we can do in the world is just tell this story over and over again. But any power that we might possess, is that's not something we would really hold on to. But it's pretty clear that with the Spirit comes the power of God. And the power of God seeks to heal all that is broken. Part of what I want to tell you this morning is that you have within you, those of you who claim God's Spirit, 
the power that is present in Christ to heal, to cast out that which is evil, to forgive. Imagine if this entire community took seriously the power to forgive one another and to call our world into forgiveness. Zach, do you feel the power present when you were laid hands on you in your ordination and the work you do in the world? Does it feel like a kind of power you get to exercise and you get to share? So we've talked about this before. Where the spirit of God is, there's freedom. I remember uh, my own ordination. I was in Dallas. And uh, I was in a small chapel about the size of our chapel over here. And there was also a moment of laying on of hands. Uh, I've got a picture on my filing cabinet in my office of... Uh, the preacher at that service, uh, whose name is Chuck Campbell or Charles Campbell. He was my preaching professor at Duke. And then behind him to, uh, to his right on the left is George Mason, who's my mentor. And they each spoke at the service. And then uh, you sit down or you kneel at the front. And then everyone in the congregation comes and they lay hands on you. And this is the moment of ordination into ministry. And I remember the moment being like really, really weighty. Uh, one pastor says that it feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders in part because people keep pressing their hands on your actual shoulders and naming what it is you're being called into. Uh, I was young at the time, uh, younger than now, and, <laughs> and I've learned so very much since then. Uh, but after that, it was during this residency after I went through graduate school, and uh, I went and took my first pastorate after that position and after that ordination and I remember thinking like oh boy I can't wait till I get to exercise my power on this new congregation and I'm going to set straight everything that's crooked in this congregation because I have the clarity of Christ Uh, how do you think that went I remember the pain of misunderstanding what it meant to hold power mistaking power for love misunderstanding, needing to control rather than to welcome. The mistakes I made, they stacked up and they caused strife and division. Fortunately, for enough of us, we also had the power to forgive and to make space to grow. In this tradition, in the Baptist tradition, we believe in the priesthood of all believers which means that even though some of us have been through this kind of ordination experience, we all hold within us the potential to step into this pastoral space with Christ to truly participate in the healing of creation. There are temptations at different times that some of us will encounter to exercise that power for our own greatness. I will say that standing up here, elevated about three feet above everybody else, increases the temptation to claim power in a dangerous way. And so even in our own staff, even in our own deacon body and leadership, we check one another. We help bring one another back into humility and back into mutuality. Being vulnerable and loving each other. 
want to finish with one story that I think gets at this power, this upside down kind of power in a really visceral way. There's a, uh, one of my favorite authors, and if you don't know, then I recommend him to you, is Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen uh, spent a lot of times in halls of power. A great thinker, theologian, professor, taught at Harvard. And then late in life was just done with that hamster wheel. Being the most important person in the room, of always feeling the need to control what people were experiencing of him. And he wanted to really find the resurrected Christ. And so rather than leading, he says uh, he had to learn how to be led. So he wrote about this experience in this book called In the Name of Jesus, which is his reflections on Christian leadership. And in here there's this chapter talks about the temptation to be powerful. I want to read for you because I, I think he says it better than I could about what's at stake, about what Simon misses, and about what Jesus is inviting us into. We all carry around with us slightly skewed images of who God is. It's just because we are limited in our capacity to understand. And part of following Jesus is following Jesus into a deeper understanding of the truth and heart of God. And when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what we see is this gracious, abundant, overflowing love, affection, forgiveness, and healing that is always pouring forth from God. If what you imagine is the God who controls and restricts and domineers, then that's the God you'll experience. A lot of the world is bent that way. And to follow Christ is to become slightly askew. So now it says, one of the great ironies, the history of Christianity, is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, moral and spiritual power. Even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it's used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. That's part of the temptation of like a televangelist is that TV images are powerful. And maybe they could be harnessed and leveraged, but there are temptations. There is this underside. With this realization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, Indians were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired, Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of consciousness was engaged in. Every time we see a crisis in the history of the church, such as the great schism of the 11th century, or the reformation of the 16th century, or the immense desecration of culture in the 20th century, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and the powerless Jesus. What makes the temptation to power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love them. Easier to own a life than to love life. Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can I sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? 
Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. We have been tempted to replace love with power. Jesus lived that temptation the most agonizing way from the desert to the cross. Simon really wants to be great. And I can feel that temptation. I understand it. And a lot of you do too. Maybe even great for the right reasons, but still about me. The invitation to follow the resurrected Christ is to follow in the way he leads. And Jesus is very explicit about where he is taking us. Taking us to those who would shame us or shame our sensibilities taking us to the place where we will experience suffering, taking us along the path toward death. It is not a place where our pride will stay intact. It is not a place where we receive all of the privilege given to those who claim power in a different way. It isn't simply believing, because lots of people believed in these moments. It's about being transformed, transformed into love, into self-sacrifice. One writer says that the way he checks his own ego and his own power in the world is every time before he leaves for a trip where people give him all these accolades and give him the best seats at the table and buy his lunch for him as he's a speaker and a writer, he stops at his home and he does the dishes. It's just one of the things he does in his own home. And it checks him every time and reminds him that he is a servant to those who he loves. In the same way that Jesus washes his followers' feet. Because every time he does the dishes. And maybe it's just that simple. The way to check our own sense of greatness is to serve. It's part of why I love that this table is here. Because maybe that's all it is. Is continually setting the table for those who are not here. For opening the doors a little bit wider. For stretching out our arms in welcome. There is power in this because I promise you there is a world craving to be seen and to belong. To hear a story told about them that is different than the one that the world is telling them. To introduce them to wholeness. You have that power of wide welcome. It is what we see Jesus do. It is what we see God doing in Christ. and is what we are called to do together to do the dishes, to set the table, to mind the door. And when we see somebody who looks like Christ, to welcome them with open arms. Friends, are you up for this? This is the way of Christ. May we have the courage and the lack of ego to follow. Would you pray with me? It can't be that simple, God. That you're just asking us in small ways to be present to the pain of this world. I confess with my friends here that I have big plans, God. Big plans. And in that confession, I seek forgiveness. 
So honestly, I just want to live in your spirit, just like these friends here just want to live in the flow of your grace and love. God, we want to experience that in such a way that it changes us so that we just matter less. And this world, this creation just matters more. We want to see like you see and we want to love like you love. And if that means there has to be less of us, less of our ego and our pride, then okay. Exercise it with whatever other spirits we have within us. God, we believe, help our unbelief. And tentatively, with trembling hands, we receive the power that you are giving through your spirit. May we use it in ways that put this world back together and don't break it apart. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.